B, and welcome to Seasons of Solidarity. Today's episode is an edition of What Are You Reading Wednesdays? Today I'll be discussing Mark Lamont Hill's book, Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and beyond. I want to begin today with a content warning that this text talks about white supremacist racism and does include some information that can be a lot to deal with. And so given that, if you want to pause at any time or take some space for self-care, that may be necessary and it's really important for us to both take care of ourselves as individuals and as a collective, to prioritize the health of everyone, but particularly um, black folks, brown folks, indigenous people of color, and those who are facing violence by the state and by institutions in society. Mark Lamont Hill's text, Nobody, Casualties of America's War on the Vulnerable, from Ferguson to Flint and beyond, speaks about what it means for the state to see folks as disposable. Here, the text specifically looks at different groups that have been deemed exploitable and therefore are marginalized within our society. Those different groups are folks who are poor, folks who are black, brown, indigenous, people of color, queer folks, particularly those who are trans, and folks who are immigrants. The ways in which this impacts people particularly are emphasized by the systems of white supremacist racism and the interlocking oppressions that we see through the lens of intersectionality. So here intersectionality is speaking to not only the ways in which individual people have various identities that can be spaces of both privilege and or oppression, but also the ways in which those exist within institutions the ways in which those exist within groups, the ways in which those exist within all spaces in society. And depending on what identities, what experiences, what labels we all have or are placed upon us by others, we may be more likely or less likely to experience state-sanctioned violence. So Hill writes about this in the Weberian sense. Weber was a sociologist who looked at the way in which the state has the power to monopolize violence. So when speaking about the monopoly on violence, What Weber was really speaking to is how the state 
is able to use violence to control the society, to control institutions, to control hegemony like education, media, religion, the main narratives of society in order to benefit specific groups and marginalize other groups. In this text, Mark Lamont Hill really takes a specific effort to go through case-by-case -case examples within each chapter. For example, he looks at the case of Michael Brown, whose life was taken by Wilson with disturbingly casual ease. He looks at other cases of white supremacist violence against people who are deemed to fit these categories of the social construction of crime or people who in many cases are not doing anything illegal, anything criminal, but simply existing with identities that have been deemed to be exploitable. In each chapter, he goes through these stories of state-sanctioned violence, such as the murder of Eric Gardner, and speaks to the way that the police have this connection to property, the way that there's this racist broken window theory. I say broken window with quotation marks around it. Hill's also going into various chapters that really detail the failures within the criminal justice system. He talks about the errors and issues of plea bargains, of overworked attorneys, how many folks are forced into agreeing to plea bargains that aren't um, accurate, how many people will confess to crimes they have not committed because there are no other choices, and how quite often money can buy people out of crimes they did commit and have admitted to committing. The text also really does a great job or Hill in the text does a really great job of speaking to how laws in this country are inherently based in the logic, in the epistemology of white supremacy, how they're also based in classist understandings, how they're based in these inherent logics of domination He does not particularly mention it, but from my own research, I know that laws are also 
quite ableist. They're also quite cis-heteronormative, meaning that folks who are disabled, folks who are neurodivergent, folks who are not cisgender, meaning they're trans, or folks who are um, living outside the binary, folks who are queer, who are not heteronormative, are more likely to be labeled as criminal, as deviant, and to face social sanctions and state-sanctioned violence, especially if there is an intersection between other identities that the state deems exploitable. In this, it creates a society where some people, by the hegemony, are seen as disposable. For example, black people only make up 13% of the US population, yet make up 36% of folks within the prison industrial complex. So when people, those being police, are trained to see one group, and honestly, this is not just police, this is the way all of us are trained to see folks in society. This is something we all must unlearn. When we're trained to see any one group of people as inherently violent or inherently criminal, of course that group is going to get arrested more. When any one neighborhood is policed far more than all the others, of course people from that neighborhood will be arrested more because that's the only place anyone is looking for crime at. Much like the saying, when all you have is a hammer, everything will look like a nail. Studies have shown that black and white teenagers use recreational marijuana at the same rates. Yet, we see that white folks are often convicted and prosecuted, and even before those, arrested at substantially lower rates than their black peers. And when they are arrested, they have more money to aid in their lack of conviction, their lack of prosecution. These are inherent aspects of white privilege. These are inherent aspects of living in a society rooted in white supremacy. These are inherent aspects of living in a society under which some folks are deemed as more or less worthy and institutions then reflect that. However, this is not true in terms of people's actual worth, right? People are obviously worth more than what the state expresses.
And we see people fight back against this in social movements. We see that people know their worth and have known their worth and have been fighting back against this for decades, for millennia. Um, in line with this, though, when people do fight back against these types of issues, quite often they will still be co-opted by the state. For example, the ways in which people have fought back against the oppression of non-cis, non-hetero folks is through the creation of movements like Pride, through the creation of movements like the LGBT and queer rights movement. But we can see, for example, in the month of June, some corporations like Target will put Pride up everywhere, will sell pride-related things out the wazoo. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying not to curse. Um, in an effort to look progressive, right? Like this moral posturing. Yet, there's nothing truly done there to aid the queer community. In fact, many of these same corporations the rest of the year will go to support legislation that continues to hurt queer and trans folks. Many of these corporations will back politicians from either of the parties um, that have prominence in this country that do not aid queer and trans folks. Similarly with issues of um, indigenous peoples or black folks. And in this, right, you may hear folks say things like, there's no ethical consumption under capitalism because so much of what we consume ends up ultimately reifying the current social order. It may often feel almost inescapable in that way because in even making our own products to try to, you know, escape that, we'll need to source, right? We'll need to get the things to make our products. And so in a lot of ways that leads me to, to question, you know, like what would alternatives look like? How could we create support and produce cooperatively to make a world that works differently, you know? How, how can we create and produce currently in this world that always seems to find some way to co-opt and exploit identities that are already deemed um, disposable or worth marginalizing? And what would it look like if we were able to build the type of support, care, and community that we need in order to limit participation in the attention economy? And if we were able to 
um, avoid this type of consumerism that tells us we are exploitable. What would that look like for us and what would that also look like for our futures, for the planet? It really speaks too to some of the themes that Mark Lamont Hill ties back in the end of his text. So at the end of the text, he really summarizes it well by saying that we have to reinvest in communities. We really have to question the legitimacy of capitalism, of the prison industrial complex, of state power. He reminds us that oppression is always met with resistance. And I argue that the history of resistance is just as long as the history of oppression. And that we are somebody and that to overcome this type of state violence, it's necessary to claim collective action. And remembering that another world is possible because all empires do fall. Um, this reminds me of the Ursula Le Guin quote that says something about how capitalism may seem inescapable, but so did the divine right of kings. Um, we know that economic systems do have a tendency to last around 500 years, right? And, um, and so in reality, liberation is probably far closer than one may think. And um, I find that Mark Lamont Hill's text does a really great job of both highlighting the issues and the traumas that do exist, but also how and why it's necessary to see our interconnection and utilize that for collective liberation and imagine what it would look like to have different futures that weren't rooted in this type of oppression. As always, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash seasons of solidarity. I'm B, and this was recorded on lands of the Tuscarora Nation.